how did we get into the modern world? This question is quite significant, and it roots back into the things we've already been through. We've discussed the scientific revolution and the beginning of an era of change and, and dramatic knowledge, and with that coming along and following on its heels, the age of enlightenment, the period in which people begin to think about new ideas, new concepts. From those springboard a whole new set of unique concepts, concepts of freedom and liberty and equality that are reframed in new and exciting ways, which brings a challenge to the status quo, to the monarchies of Europe. England has already experienced a transformation. Now the new nation of America is born out of these very ideas, this very need for revolution. And we saw in France a nation struggle to rise with mixed results. Now we're entering into a period where things are going to change quite drastically. Revolutions are going to happen. In some ways, they're going to pick up speed. And yet something else is going on an age of technological advancement, an era uh, in which the whole entire surface of society is going to be refaced with new ideas, new philosophies, new ways of thinking, new science. And some of these changes, while welcome, will also be quite frightening. Welcome to the period of isms. Buckle up and get ready. I'm taking you from the steam engine all the way to the fields of World War I. It's 1869, and Dmitri Mendeleev was in a hurry. He had been facing a deadline from his publisher for the latest volume of his work on chemistry. Mendeleev was not really in many ways a novelty. That is, other people were looking at elements and arranging them as well. However, Mendeleev discovered a key to unlock the secrets of the elements. He arranged them by atomic weight and realized as he was making this chart, this table, that he was missing some elements elements that had yet to be discovered. Instead of pretending that he knew what they were, he left blanks or gaps. But he did leave a prediction of how he thought those elements would likely behave. Turns out his predictions were pretty good. He presented his findings to the Russian Chemical Society, and the discipline was transformed. Today, we still use Mendeleev's table to teach chemistry. Mendeleev no doubt thought of all the advancements that could be had with his new discoveries. But for a toxic Europe that is trying to come together, this will provide new weapons that will end up tearing the theater of Europe apart. Ahoy. That's probably not the greeting you use when you pick up your phone, but it was definitely the one that was used by its inventor, Alexander Graham Bell. There is this oft-disputed legend, which is most certainly probably untrue, uh, that it was Thomas Thomas Edison who actually started using the word hello. He picked up the phone. It was an old pig call, apparently. And that's how he decided to use that word. Now, whether hello came into the English language based upon that or not is the part that's deeply disputed. It's probably untrue, but what is true is that the world is in a rapid flux of change. New economic systems are being debated, and innovations and inventions are moving at rapid pace, breakneck speed. There's a flurry of reform movements going on, all working to reshape society. And the problem is that society is changing so rapidly, it's almost difficult to keep up with the changes. This is one of the reasons I both love and hate to teach about the 19th century. You always feel like no matter how much you covered, it's impossible to actually have covered even the remotest piece of ground to really get down to, uh, to all the things that happened during the century. 
So nations are making money, many of them hand over fist. Scientists are unlocking secrets of the universe like Marie Curie and Mendeleev and many others who are making huge strides. Sci-fi writers like Jules Verne and H.G. Wells uh, start dreaming of taking a rocket into space. Really interesting. Check it out. Jules Verne, one of my favorite authors, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, um, Journey to the Center of the Earth, Around the World in 80 Days. Jules Verne is very fascinating because he actually proposed in one of his books to the, uh, I think it's called To the Moon and Back, if I'm not mistaken. He proposed a rocket that would go to space and he described this rocket. And as it turns out, the first rocket that went into outer space was actually very, very similar to the one that Jules Verne's described in his book long before, and that even became a possibility. H.G. Wells is dreaming of the same thing. And the sky seems limitless. Man is finally making progress on his road to paradise. Europeans are taking their place as the leaders of civilization, the masters of the planet, and ignorance is being left behind along with religion and superstition as masses of people are now turning their eyes away from that and looking more towards this bright and optimistic future. Philosophers are confident the age of God that we started with when we began this semester is now coming to a close and we're leaving irrationality in the dust. Of course, the influences of Hegel and his view on progress definitely moved pretty rapidly through society. They didn't just make impressions on Marx, they made impressions on really, in many ways, this entire century. Uh, the movement away from religion, away from irrationality, away from superstition is, is goaded by a brand new set of bold and innovative thinkers who begin to transform the landscape of European thought. I couldn't possibly discuss them all. We could talk about Freud. We could get into a number of philosophers from this period. But I do want to pick up one who's very, very important, I think, and his name is Nietzsche. Nietzsche was born, uh, Frederick Nietzsche was born the son of a Lutheran pastor in Rocken, Prussia, which is, by the way, is kind of an awesome name for a town, Rocken, right? Um, he found his very early life mark, pockmarked with tragedy. So the, his father contracted an illness and he slipped into insanity. By the end of the year, the father had died. The autopsy revealed that a quarter of his brain was missing at that point. So I don't know what kind of illness that is, but that's a frightening one. So um, this was the first step towards Nietzsche's uh, you know, huge change. And he becomes, uh, he starts to follow his father's footsteps. He goes to the university when he comes of age to become a, a pastor like his father. But religion studies are changing. There's a new kind of thing called biblical criticism where they begin to criticize the Bible. He comes to see the Bible is largely myth and Nietzsche rejects religion. And ultimately, he doesn't just reject religion, but he becomes an enemy of religion. And romantically attached to philosophy, he thought that Europe was entering into an era of growth and power that threw off the constraints of a weak and passive religious value that encouraged meekness instead of power, timidity instead of aggression, ignorance instead of reason, that Europe would come to peace, but it wouldn't come to peace with God. It would come together outside the confines of religion and superstition. He thought God was an idea that we needed in the past. We didn't understand where people came from. We didn't understand how the universe come to be. We didn't understand how the forces of science work. But now that science has answered those questions, God's existence is superfluous. We don't need it. So ladies and gentlemen, we have come all the way around to the opposite end of the spectrum. We have left the scene in which God is at the center of all things to where now God is being pushed to the periphery of society. 
I'm not suggesting everyone was an atheist, and I'm certainly not suggesting that religion wasn't a powerful force. But over politics, over the movers and shakers of the world, religion has lost its grip, and Nietzsche has his hand, his finger on that pulse. Europeans are free now to write their own destiny. They're free to create their own chaos, to rise to new heights. He charged that Europe had murdered a god, and now it faced the task of redefining itself. Nietzsche is asking them, just as John Lennon asked uh, his generation and ours to imagine. Nietzsche wrote, God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off of us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? And so Nietzsche's ideas, while provocative, had some very important elements to, and key things that it contributed to societal thought. Nietzsche proposed a wild and provocative idea that history was moved by individuals as opposed to the masses. He started to realize the masses were not the way to get anything done. Great men of the past forced people into the future. These men were, were, were not do-gooders or passive lambs. They were men of grit, like Alexander or Napoleon, who, bent, who thought to bend history to their will. They were not bound to the moral constraints around them because the, tradition, the traditions, traditional rules of morality just simply didn't apply to them. Nietzsche calls them the Ubermensch or the Supermen. He didn't mean that biologically as it comes to be understood later. But he meant that their sheer force of will makes them a, like a Superman. And the idea gains a bit of notoriety. It captures the imagination of social Darwinists who saw history as theirs for the taking. But the murder of God inspired a generation of young thinkers who were taken by the concept of the Ubermensch who could, be th who could throw off the concepts of conventional morality because of a call to greatness. We'll come back to that a little bit later. The Nazis of the 1930s and 40s severely distorted Nietzsche's intentions, and it is most certain that they would have been too far for Nietzsche. But you can see in the events of his day that he was not much of a novelty. He was rather an expression of the zeitgeist of his own time. Uh, by the beginning of the 20th century, this kind of aggression and power grabbing is taking place all over the world. The world is gearing up, and things happening in the 1870s are precipitous events that shake the foundation of society. For men of iron and blood, men who sought to replace religion with a new kind of allegiance, one that sought to place, replace God, with the state. Pride in one's own nation is as old as time, but now it takes on a new life because nationalism becomes its own kind of religion. And this aspect of nationalism is not just present in Germany, but it's present in our own world. It's present in our own time. There are many nationalists uh, that, that, uh, that place the state almost in a position as if it were divine. The Ubermensch, Hegelian power brokers, are starting to emerge to lead people into the future. Before we can really wrap up this lesson, we have to stop and take a look at the world to see what is happening that is transforming society. 
First, we'll start with our old friend France. By 1830, Charles X is the new monarch of France. Now, Charles X is the brother of Louis XVIII, who we already know. Charles was very conservative, and during his reign, he started squinting at this return to the old regime. He wanted to satisfy the ultra-conservatives. As you probably imagine, this went over like a lead balloon. Instead, the July Revolution happened, which actually drove Charles off his throne and out of France and put his cousin, Louis-Philippe, on the throne. Now, Louis-Philippe was liked. The bourgeoisie protected him and kept him safe, and he reigned for about 18 years. But by 1846, things were getting hard, and the year was actually almost like one of those that happened before the French Revolution began. Food shortages and all types of problems taking place. But the crown was slow to act. Louis just didn't move quickly. And in 1848, the monarch was overthrown, and in a surprising twist of fate, yet another constitution was written by France. Oh my gosh, how many of these are written, right? They declared now a second republic, and they elected Napoleon's nephew of all people, Charles Louis Napoleon Bonaparte. So, I mean, you know, what could go wrong? Well, after his short term in office, he was supposed to turn over power, but he... He didn't. He took over and established a sort of dictatorship. I don't want to paint him as somebody who was awful. In fact, during the first uh, five years of his reign, and I know, by the way, the dictatorship had to shock you, right? But during the first five years of his reign, he was a good administrator, a lot like his uncle. And uh, he did good, but by the 1860s, he started to struggle. Part of that is that the Ottoman Empire starts to collapse, and Russia decides now is their time to begin to expand their borders. Russia moves in. And you know, France and Russia, they just have kind of a relationship with one another that, as you know, France just cannot quit Russia. So poor, poor young Napoleon, he just couldn't make it work. He botched this war with Prussia badly. And it ends up costing him his kingdom. He's ultimately ousted. And that's the second Bonaparte that's been ousted from power and exiled. So kind of a family theme, okay? Um, so that's what's going on in France. So we're kind of caught up to speed on what's happening there. Now, if we look over a little bit farther east, we can go back to Central Europe and the Ottoman Empire. So we haven't checked up on the Ottomans in a while. It's actually been quite a while. But the Ottomans have been in what has been a slow but fairly steady decline since the last time that we saw them. In the 19th century, they're, they're hobbling. I mean, they're basically crippled and they're, they're on a crutch, more or less. And with this decline comes the emergence of new European states. As early as 1817, Serbia gains its independence. They break free from the Ottomans. Greece breaks free in 1830. Uh, In 1829, they also lost Moldavia and Wallachia. So they're starting to see the Ottoman Empire fragment and break apart. But not quite yet. Um, And the Ottomans give the French, which I'm not really sure. That's something I would really like to know more about why the Ottomans chose the French to be protectors of of the holy Christian sites. But for whatever reason, they did, which aggravates Russia because Russia feels that they want to have their hands on that. And let's be honest, Russia's always had its sights on on the territory of the Ottoman Empire for expansion. So when they asked the Turks, we also want to be protectors of the holy sites. The Turks basically, you know, laugh at them like, yeah, sure, right. And uh, that's a... It's a pretty hard no. And at that moment in time, this becomes 
uh, this becomes a moment of crisis. So Russia says, fine, if you're not going to make us holy protectors of this, we're going to start invading your northern territories, which they do. And so in 1853, the Turks declare war on Russia, which brings in the British and the French, because the British and the French are kind of concerned. We don't want Russia to get that territory, <clears throat> because if they do, that's going to make them even bigger and more, more powerful than they already are. So they join to fight with the Turks, declaring war on Russia. So uh, the war is known as the Crimean War, and it's kind of a disaster from the start. It doesn't last very long. In the end, Russia has to sue for peace, um, but of course it came at this you know, terrible expense. A lot, of, a lot of life was lost. So Austria, um, you know, at this time, refuses to help Russia. They have their own problems. Austria is dealing with the breakaway of Italy, the breakaway of the German states we'll talk about in just a moment. And so this, this kind of severs that alliance. And that's going to be important because later on, as we get into the world wars, while Austria and Russia are not initially enemies, they're not exactly on the same friendly terms. So it's kind of interesting. All the powers that existed to keep something like a person like Napoleon from taking power, all those powers are broken. And in one way, that seems like a good thing. But if you actually stop and analyze it, you realize that there's some, you know, some consequences that come along with that. And these consequences will actually be devastating, but we're not quite ready to get there. We want to look and see what else is happening. Now, if we're looking, events are shaping up in the East um, because Westerners have continued over a steady period of time to encroach upon Eastern lands. Um, and it wasn't really until the middle of the 19th century that colonial powers start to come into more direct conflict with Asia. So this happens, um, you know, India is brought under British control in the 1850s, which makes Queen Victoria the Empress of India, okay, because that's a, that's a, that's an actual title. You know, you can be English and not be from India and still be the Empress of India. Yeah, just think about that for a minute. So Britain made headway into Burma. They made headway into Malay and took these territories and brought them under their control. So then France says, well, we need to get in on the action here. So France begins to really focus on Indochina, and they offer their quote-unquote protection, you know, from the British, of course, because everybody's looking for that. And uh, they, offer their, they offer their protection, uh, and uh, they extend that protection over Cambodia, uh, Annam, Tonkin, Laos, uh, which, of course, includes the, today would be, you know, modern-day Vietnam, which is going to be part of the conflict that happens in the middle really towards the end of the middle, I should say like second middle half of the 20th century, but hopefully we'll get there. And uh, Guam, Hawaii, and the Philippines came under kind of direct control of the United States. So the Philippines actually came under because the U.S. had a conflict with Spain, and that allowed us to kind of step foot into those islands and make, make our, first, um, our first stab at really enlarging our territories in the east. Uh, President McKinley and President Roosevelt were a huge part of what happened there. So a lot of the territories um, that had originally fallen underneath Chinese control, but now Chinese control starts to ebb away. These foreigners coming in and causing lots of problems and chaos. This causes the Chinese and the European powers, uh, it causes China to be destabilized. And the more it becomes destabilized, the more the Europeans use it to conquer and divide and get more concessions from China. China finally has enough. By the turn of the century, China's in, not in any mood anymore for funny business from the West. They've had enough of the West encroaching on their affairs, and they're, they're totally over it. And so 
Um, by 1900, an outbreak of violence broke out in China. There was a secret group. They were known as the Society of Harmonious Fists. And they decided enough was enough. They wanted the foreigners out of China. <clears throat> now, the people of China had another name for this group. They referred to them as boxers. So they started a rebellion in history known as the Boxer Rebellion. This rebellion only lasts for about a year, but it's, it's a pretty bad one. The boxers start to murder missionaries, foreign missionaries. They start to murder Chinese people who had converted to Christianity. They murder people who are working on the railroad. They murder a German envoy. Pretty much anybody that got in their way that considered to be a possible source or uh, uh, somebody who's working with their threat, they're going to eliminate them. And so the Europeans decide we have to do something about this. We can't let China, these Chinese rebels, just come in and do what they want. So Europe comes down into concerted effort like a hard rain on the Chinese and put this rebellion down. And of course, in the background is another group of people who uh, we'll talk about in just a moment who hate the Chinese and have always hated the Chinese and are ready to kind of get in there and put that dagger in the back. And that, of course, is the Japanese. So they marched an army into Beijing and they restored uh, restored order. So the, the Manchu dynasty was weakened and it basically fell, which was one of the last, I think the last real dynasties. And they set up a government that's like a democratic socialist government under a guy named um, Sun Yat-sen. But the new republic they set up was weak. Um, it just didn't work. And that meant that China had a world of trouble coming. As we get into the 20th century, China is going to undergo dramatic and drastic changes. And I hope we can come back here and talk about what happens there. Now, Japan nearly had the same fate as the Chinese very early on. In 1868, the shogun, shogun was a military leader in China, led his warriors, known as the samurai, was the real power of Japan. The emperor didn't have a lot of power. But by this time, by the time, though, as the century goes on, the shogun becomes weak and anti-form sentiments start to rise very high. So revolt happens in Japan and they end up with a new emperor. This period of Japanese history is known as the Meiji Restoration. Now, this was the moment Japan left the feudal world and became very modern, at least modern in the sense of, it, of its own time, okay? Um, Mutsuhito was the name of the emperor. He was bright, he was inquisitive, and he had a very strong vision for what he wanted out of Japan. The emperor was very clever, decides that he can't beat the European powers, so he's going to join them. Uh, they modeled their army off Germany, they modeled their navy off Britain, and economically, it was the United States that provided the inspiration for Japan. So the government of Japan had democratic elements, but it had a strong sense of authoritarian ideology, which really, really, of course, shapes Japan. Japan comes a powerful military state. By the time that Russia came into conflict with them in the, day, in the reign of, of Tsar Nicholas II, or what they call the Russo-Japanese War, they were, they were more than prepared. They were ready for the battle. The Japanese pick up Western habits of imperialism, and that's going to also lead the Japanese into conflict in the days ahead. But again, we're not quite there. The big changes that happen, the coming together, if you will, happens in Germany. So in 1848, Germany tried to unite under their own revolution, and that, that was a disaster. It failed. But things were about to change, because in 1860, King Wilhelm I of Prussia sought to beef up his army. Wilhelm was a, a pretty good leader. When he proposed new taxes, the legislature um, basically shut down his proposal for taxes. So Wilhelm goes, uh, goes over their head. He appoints a prime minister who's kind of something of a go-getter. His name is Otto von Bismarck. In Bismarck, Nietzsche saw this man of iron, a superman bending reality to his will. 
he was determined that he would unite the German states. He would ignore any governmental body that told him otherwise. And the Second Reich, what we call the Second Reich, is about to be born. He wasn't looking to achieve glory by liberal thoughts, by freedom and democracy and voting. He was looking, Bismarck turned to, to the force of will, to conservative power broking. He thought that, that speeches and all of this nonsense wasn't going to get anything done. It was all going to be done by iron and grit. And so Bismarck accomplished something that had been unattainable since Charlemagne. He unites Germany under Wilhelm I, who goes by the name, after the uniting, we'll talk about it in a minute, he goes by the name Kaiser. Kaiser means Caesar. So uh, he, he leads a, a successful campaign. They win their first war against Denmark, which opens up the territory. <coughs> now, as a man of action, the Count had some very clear goals. After defeating Denmark, uh, he recognized the Germans didn't hate the Austrians, but they wanted their own nation. Italy was kind of going through the same thing. So the Germans needed to weaken Austria's claim, Austria's power. So the Austrians uh, helped them play a role in the defeat of Denmark, uh, which is which Bismarck called for their help, and they came to aid. But afterwards, they want to uh, they want to kind of control the table, so to speak, in the administration of the new defeated territory of Denmark, and uh, this puts this puts Prussia in conflict with Austria, and so they go to battle with the Austrians, and they beat the Austrians. The Austrians realize the Germans are not. The German states are a little more powerful than we gave them credit for. So he consolidates then a lot of the other states and brings them together. And then uh, he brings the southern states along at first. He, they are still kind of independent, but they, they begin to look towards Prussia as their, their savior or their, uh, their uh, ultimate end. Okay, So the Rhineland, the Alsace, and Lorraine, those are all territories that had been disputed since the time of Charlemagne. So there becomes a battle with the Germans and the French to reclaim that territory. The Germans are able to wrest that territory from the French. They beat the French and they beat Charles Bonaparte in the Franco-Prussian Wars from 1870 to 1871. This cost France territory and it cost them a lot of money to try to save it. And it left a lot of bad blood between these two nations, which is going to come up again as we move into the 20th century. So this means that all the southern German states decide, okay, now's the time to still officially join together with them because we can see that this is going to work. And so they do. And um, in 1871, Germany fully comes together. This is no longer Prussia. Ladies and gentlemen, we've just met the birth of Germany. It was uh, Wilhelm, who is now Kaiser of a second Roman Empire, at least in his mind, that's how he's viewing it. There's a swell of national pride that sweeps through Germany, and the emphasis on autocratic and militaristic rule captured the mood. The Germans would rise to be the Ubermensch of Nietzsche's ideology. Now, the Germans uh, were very, very proud once they had the opportunity to have their own nation. And in fact, it's reflected in their own, um, their own national anthem. Today, you don't hear this verse sung of the German national anthem. There are several verses. But in one of the verses, uh, it talks, you can see their nationalism and their racism reflected. They talked about how that Germans are pure, that their tongue is pure, and that their, their, their wine and their women are pure. And they're referring to being racially pure, being racially superior, which again comes along with social Darwinism. So I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story my professor told me in college. My professor, uh, he spoke pretty good German, and he goes at least... You know, every other year he goes to Germany. And one year, you know, many years ago, he went to Germany and he went to a, a, a bar 
And this is what he told us in class, and I believe him. He's, he's, he's a pretty interesting character. So being a social scientist, he always likes to push buttons. And they were sitting in the bar, and he was, he was still sober, but the others were a little, a little inebriated. And uh, there was only them. The bar was basically closed at the time. They closed and let them kind of stay for a little longer. So my, my professor says to one of the German guys, who's a doctor there, he says, hey, guys, I have never heard the first verse of the German national anthem sung before. Would you guys sing around of it? And uh, the German, the guys were like, nine, nine, Ekfrabaden, which means it's forbidden. He goes, come on, there's nobody here. Guys, nobody's going to hear you do it. I just want to hear it. I've never heard it before. I think it'd be interesting. So he finally convinced them to do it, and they started singing the round. He said, he said they got halfway through the, the verse, and the doctor stood up from the table and raised his hand out in front of him as if he were hiling Hitler. And he said everybody at the table stopped, including the doctor. Like He looked down and realized what he'd done. He broke out into in tears. Um, again, so he said he went upstairs and he, he flipped the light on in his wife's room and he locked the door and he put his hands on the door and he goes, oh my God, you're not going to believe what I just saw. So, you know, he, he, he was, he was amused by it, but to, to get that kind of mindset, there was something very deep that happens in the German people after being held so long back at this time that they want to have their own identity. And when they get it, there's a pride that comes in that. And that pride you know, goes into World War One and really into World War Two. Hitler's going to, he's going to capitalize on that pride uh, and really appeal to the German people as a great people who really are of pure descent and pure blood and so forth. So, this is an interesting, an interesting piece of history. I thought I would throw in to kind of see what's going on in Germany and how Germany's mind is changing. So, finally, we arrive in Russia. Poor Russia. Russia is not doing that great. Now, back in 1820, Russia had a new czar, and that new czar was Nicholas I. At his coronation, a revolt broke out, and it had to be put down with bloodshed. And this bothered Nicholas. But later on, Nicholas decided he was going to let this make him into a hard man. When five of the conspirators were hung, three of them had ropes that fell down because they were poorly tied. One of the conspirators yelled, poor Russia, we can't even hang a man properly. The event marked Nicholas and, 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 again, made him very, very austere. His gaze was once described as frightening and unnerving as if looking into the eyes of a rattlesnake. And this was actually his son's description of him. Nicholas decided Russia had to be ruled with an iron fist. No more of that nonsense. His rule was going to focus on making obedient servants who did not ask questions. You can imagine that he had a number of people who opposed his rule. But Nicholas wants to hang on to the past, and his, ref his refusal to free the serfs was a dark blotch on his record. So, when he passes away, he leaves the throne to his son, Alexander II. Alexander II saw that his father was hampering the Industrial Revolution, and so Alexander II takes a different turn. He wants to liberalize the country when he becomes czar, and he does. He succeeded in setting the serfs free, but his reforms didn't go far enough, meaning that even though de facto they were free on paper, in reality, they, there was still de, fact, you know, de facto slavery going on. And so people, the serfs couldn't break free. There were no land reforms. And the land reforms they got was they would get a little piece of the land they had been working. And that little piece of the land was usually the worst piece. And so it still favored the nobility. So these reforms, although Alexander really did want to reform Russia, and he really did try, and he made a lot of strides forward, um, a terrorist organization known as the People's Will plotted to put Alexander to death. 
realizing that nothing but his death could cause the Russian people to rise up and overthrow the government. So this is the first modern terrorist group, and it was made up primarily of students. Uh, one, of the, one was a brilliant chemistry student who had created a grenade, which he lobbed at Alexander while he was riding in his carriage, coming down from his celebration of his coronation. It landed, it blew up the carriage, but somehow, miraculously, Alexander was, was unharmed. So Alexander, what he makes a mistake is he gets out on the street to talk with the conspirators, and another grenade is lobbed at him. This time, it blew up, and it shattered the bottom half of his body, and pretty much blew off his legs. Um, so he, he died, and his son decides that, you know what, maybe Grandpa was right in how to deal with the Russian people. And it, when, here's my mad history headline, Ulyanov. When Alexander II was killed, his son wanted revenge, so a group of radicals involved in the plot, his death, were rounded up. All but five of them were released. One of the radicals was named Alexander Ulyanov. He was the son of a noble civil servant, and he was, taking, uh, he was taking with the radical new ideas coming from the West. These radicals were primary, were primary terrorists, those who helped the, the plot the actual death of the Tsar. And Alexander was not only the bomb maker, Alexander was also the mastermind behind the entire planning of it. And Alec, in the moment of desperation, he wrote to the Tsar, asked him to pardon him for the sake of his mother. The Tsar would have nothing of it. The Tsar hung him. The day he was hung, his teenage brother would never forget it. His teenage brother was sitting in geometry class, and his hatred for the Tsar grew that day into a radical rage. His name was Vladimir Ulyanov, but you know him by his invented, by his invented pen name, Lenin. Okay, so Alexander III watched his father die and determined to put an end to his liberal policies. This set the course for his reign and that of his son. The inability to loosen their grip and grant people a constitution, a rule by consent, is going to actually seal the fate of this dynasty. The Romanov dynasty has ruled for 300 years, but this is all about to be over. Alexander doesn't live, you know, terribly long. I mean, he, he, I'm not saying he died immediately, but he's not, he doesn't live to be a real old man. He dies and he leaves this son to his, he leaves the throne to his son, Nicholas II. Nicholas wasn't a bad guy. He was a dedicated family man. He was loyal to his wife. He was very devoutly religious and he was a doting father to five beautiful children. But as ruler, he was autocratic and he was ignorant and out of touch with everything that was going on in Russia. His response to the 1905 unarmed revolt by peasants ended with a group of peasants being attacked by the army. It was, it was the day that Nicholas really lost Russia. He and his family are on a collision course with a group of radicals that's going to end the story of this dynasty with the ringing of a bullet for him and a ringing of the bullet for his entire family. Now, speaking to Russia in the crisis is another voice, the voice on the opposite end of Nietzsche. And I believe he can be easily classified as one of the most important writers of the 19th century. This is one of Mr. Hughes' favorite people. His name is Yodor Dostoevsky. Now, Dostoevsky was a part of a revolutionary group that wanted to overthrow the government. He actually almost, he was almost shot, but the Tsar decided to send him to Siberia. With only a New Testament to read, he left Siberia a changed man. He started to write works that attacked radical ideas like Nietzsche's Ubermensch, which he attacked in his groundbreaking novel Crime and Punishment. He warned against killing the Tsar. He warned against the coming of radicals in his books like Demons or The Idiot. At the end of his life, he wrote one last work. After losing his son, he decided to transform the protagonist to have the same name as his child. In this book, known as The Brothers Karamazov, he shows Russia the path that lay before it and the danger of allowing radical ideas to circulate among the mass populations. 
he warned this was not the way, and he entitled the book originally The Socialist. To unveil, to veil this further, he decided on Brothers Karamazov, which is a Tartar word meaning black stain. This was his greatest work, but he never got to do the sequel because he died before it could be finished. And all of this that's going on is marching Europe down a road, and that road leads to war. All right, do your homework, and we'll come back and talk about the beginning of World War I.